So this week, two disparate things happened in my life. Number one, I was involved in the successful effort to have a racist candidate for the Carmel New York Board of Education drop out of an upcoming election. And number two, I attended a cast and crew party for Winning Time, the HBO series based on my book, Showtime. And the guy who dropped out is a 70-year-old white man who posted a nonstop string of racist memes and thoughts on his Facebook page. And even now, after leaving the race, he doesn't seem to get it. He's complaining about the decline of free speech, the lack of people to laugh at comparisons between African-Americans and monkeys. Where, he wants to know, is the America he once loved. And I thought a lot about that at the winning time party. It was a beautifully diverse affair in every way. Americans and folks from all around the globe, black, yellow, white, all together in one room, celebrating an achievement we all felt great about. It was beautiful and gratifying, and yet another reminder that the world is a far better place when you don't hide and limit yourself to the comfort of your own little shell. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Tracy Letts, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright whose work includes August Osage County, Superior Donuts, and The Minutes, who won Tony Awards for Best Play and Best Actor, and who plays Jack McKinney in the HBO series Winning Time, based on my book, Showtime. This is episode number 259. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, well, Tracy, first of all, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Well, I was thinking, all right, so, you know, I, I know a lot about your bio and your background and et cetera. And um, I was thinking about something I wanted to ask someone, and I think you're the guy to ask this. Okay. Um, okay. So right now you play, uh, you play Jack McKinney in Winning Time, which is based on a book I wrote called Showtime. And I keep getting people saying to me, you know, wow, this is really cool, blah, blah, blah. This is amazing. But man, they took a lot of liberties, right? Wow, they took a lot of liberties uh, with this and with that. And this character, did he really do that? Well, did he really do that? Well, this is my first time having a book turned into anything. And I'm actually having trouble with that. I'm actually having trouble explaining that to people. And in some ways, justifying it. Like people say, well, did that really, was that really what Paul West said did in that moment? I'm like, no, but you have to understand it's TV. How do you get comfortable with the idea that, okay, there is this thing, called nonfiction. And then there is this thing called TV, a dramatized series and they're different entities. And that is okay. Uh, how do you get comfortable with that? Well, I don't know. I, you're either comfortable with it or you're not. Uh, I'm very comfortable with it. I've always been comfortable with it. Uh, I think of examples like in cold blood, uh, which is, you know, just in some ways, the, the, the best example of, well, I mean, right, they called it a nonfiction novel. Capote called it a nonfiction novel. Right. In which he took the real people and he did his research and then he dramatized those events. It's a dramatization. Uh, real life isn't really that interesting. There's a reason that we turn it into stories, that we, we apply dramatic conflict to uh, everyday situations. That's, that's what dramatization is. 
you, you take the bits that are dramatic and you tell them truthfully, and then you take the bits that are not dramatic and you make stuff up. That's the nature of it. I mean, I, I, I got to say, these guys who are complaining about the way they're being portrayed, I, I just couldn't disagree more strongly as much as I admire them and respect their accomplishments. I just couldn't, I couldn't disagree more strongly. For one thing, I think you can actually get who a person is by dramatizing them, by, in essence, making them more interesting. Uh, I would imagine that the portrayal of Jerry West, even though there, there may be none of it that's, that actually happened like that, I would imagine that something about it gets at something pretty essential about who Jerry West was in a way that a documentary following Jerry West around with a camera actually would be further from the real person. I, I think Jerry West has gotten some bad legal advice. I don't think he, <laughs> I don't think he has a case. Yeah. I think Jerry West obviously has drawn even more attention to the show and to the portrayal of him by coming out in the press and talking about it. And I think in some ways, most importantly, these guys don't recognize hero worship when they see it. This is absolutely an example of the people who created this show. They clearly love these guys they're telling the story about. If they didn't love Jerry West, believe me, it would look a lot different than the way it looks. If you tell the story of the right stuff, which I think is another kind of example of, I mean, it's, it's a kind of journalism, but it's also a dramatization. If you tell the story of the right stuff and you just leech all of the personality out of those astronauts and you just turn them into kind of rock-ribbed, conservative, uh, just, you know, science first, you know, probably boring people. Uh, you, you're just, it's just going to look like a Soviet propaganda film. It's not going to be interesting to anybody at all. The way you lure uh, actors like uh, Ed Harris and Scott Glenn and Fred Ward and Dennis Quaid to play those characters is by putting something on the page, first of all, that's going to be interesting and, uh, charismatic, something you want to watch, but you also have to give them dramatic stakes. You have to give them obstacles. You have to give them uh, flaws. You have to make them fully realized people. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think people ought to just get over it. And, and Kareem, my God, I, I absolutely uh, love and respect Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And uh, I so admire uh, his intellect. But when he says this story is best left to the people who lived it, that's just flat fucking wrong. That's just wrong. You, the story should never be left to the person who lived it. The story absolutely has to be told from a third party because the, the first person account is always going to be, is always going to involve self-interest always. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You just said something that hits me a thousand times over my mom recently. She, we had this conversation and she said to me, your life is so exciting. Your life is so exciting. And I'm like, if you came to my house and saw me <laughs> sitting in front of a laptop for seven hours a day, trying to pound out, it's not even remotely exciting. But if you add music and you get some actor who's really good looking to play me and you have inspirational thoughts, maybe circulating through my head with some graphic, it seems really exciting. Maybe life is just really boring. Is that actually true to you? Are you like exaggerating when you say that? Or do you actually feel like life is a fairly boring enterprise? Look, I think you going and getting in your closet, there's nothing inherently interesting about you going and getting in your closet to do a, a podcast. 
Right. But uh, if we give you the character of a wife who says, I've got to get into that closet and you say, look, I'm not letting you get in the closet. I've got to do my pot. We give you guys a fight about using of the closet. We can turn that into a dramatic situation. But no, most of life is pretty banal. Most of life is just about like walking in and out of buildings and you know, <laughs> sitting in chairs. It's pretty dull. That's so funny. It really is true. Um, wait, so you have a um, you have a play out now that's obviously doing very well, and it's you know kind of I don't even know what the terminology is for soaring up the charts or you know the, but the minutes and it um it is literally based on what sounds like the most boring thing ever, which yeah. is a city council meeting. How does your head work, or how does it work where you take an idea that on the surface, if you said to someone, if you said to my mom right now, oh yeah, I'm thinking of doing a play, it's going to be about a city council meeting, wouldn't sound interesting at all. How does an idea start in your head and you think, no, that really can be an interesting thing. There's something there. Um, I don't know. Uh, I will tell you that the the initial impulse for the minutes was I was watching one of those uh, universal horror movies from the old, from the thirties and forties, a Frankenstein movie, early Frankenstein movie. And I was really struck by the character of the villagers. We always see the villagers in these movies that carry their torches and they're going out to kill the monster. And I thought we never really see the moment where they come together as a village and have the debate about whether or not they should go out and kill the monster. Surely somebody is in that meeting going, wait a minute, I don't think we should go kill the monster. I think this is a bad idea. Uh, We never see that. We always see them kind of as a, a unit accomplishing their task. So my original idea was to show the meeting of the villagers deciding to kill the monster. Well, very quickly that turned into a better idea, which was a way to look at our uh, national politics and our political system through the lens of a uh, of a city council, a small town city council meeting. It, that allowed me to scale it down and hopefully find the universal in the specific of this meeting. And of course, what I wanted to look at primarily was you know, the encroaching fascism we're dealing with in this country and uh, the the tipping point, the moment where a community goes from where you go to bed at night in a democracy and you wake up one morning and you're uh, you're in, under authoritarian rule because there is a tipping point. There does come a moment where it happens, though it's been a long time coming, it will happen very suddenly where you go from the moment of Wow. Look at what they did to that uh, Khashoggi, uh, the way they took that guy apart with a bone saw. Look at the way they're uh, separating those families down the border. That's a shame. The moment you go from that to the moment you go, oh, I wonder what happened to the neighbors. They're just gone. Uh, They just left all their stuff in the house and they're gone. And yeah, I saw some guys in a black car driving out. You know, that moment does come. It does. You eventually get there. And so that's uh, the minutes provided a a way to look at uh, that moment. It's a kind of uh, it's a kind of horror story. It's a kind of American horror story. You write on a typewriter. Yeah, that is insane. What? How do you write on a typewriter? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> don't I mean, you type on a computer? <laughs> <laughs> no, I I've only met. There's a writer named Pat Jordan, a sports writer, a great sports writer, and he um he recently disappointed me. He's about eighty, and he recently gave up his typewriter. And you, when I read the use a typewriter, I thought he might be the only person I know who uses a typewriter. <laughs> Why do you use a typewriter? 
I, I look, uh, I like it. I like the feel of a three dimensional paper. I like seeing letters appear on a page when I write it, you know, playwright, uh, is spelled W R I G H T. Right. Like, like wheel, right. Like I like the feeling of making something. And when I see pages coming out of a typewriter and, and I'm, and the stack of pages slowly gets a little deeper, a little thicker, I feel like I'm, like I'm making something. I'm making something where nothing existed before. Computer doesn't feel like that to me. Computer feels not real, right? It, it's uh, quote unquote virtual. It doesn't feel like real work. There's one other thing too, which is that uh, the actual act of fingers moving across a, a typewriter's keys. You know, if I rewrite from a from a type from typewritten pages then I will have to rewrite stuff I had no plans of rewriting. Whereas on a computer, you, you go, oh, I just need to, this, this page is fine. I'll just move on to the page that's trouble. Well, the page that's fine actually needs rewriting too. Uh, all of the pages need rewriting. Uh, the computer makes it too easy to cut corners. Man, I know it's a long time ago. When you, you did do this list where you talk to people about sort of creative the creative process. Yeah. And some of it, I was like, holy shit, that's number one. So lately I've been walking without music, without a podcast, without anything, because I just think sometimes it's important to think. And your actual first thing on your list was don't do anything. And you went into this monologue about sit on the couch. Don't look out a window. Don't suppress your thoughts. Don't turn on the TV when you're bored. Don't check your phone. Just don't do anything. Is that actually a part of your sort of writing experience? Yeah. I have to have time uh, without uh, stimulus. I have to have time where the only stimulus is my own brain, my own thoughts. I mean, it's pretty easy in the modern age to just completely occupy your brain with stimulus from the moment you get up until the moment you go to sleep through all the media we have access to, through, you know, through our, all, all of the things we're engaged in, our work, our families, et cetera. And then finally, these phones have now filled in all the blanks, right? All the blank time you used to have is now filled in by the time you look at your phone. So you're in constant stimulus. And I think it's important for a writer, especially to spend time with their thoughts and letting, and daydreaming. I think daydreaming is, <laughs> I think we're in danger of losing daydreaming. And I, I think that's, it's bad for all of us, but it's certainly bad for writers. Well, have you found that your writing, is it all impacted by modern technology and the lack of attention span we're giving ourselves? Is that something you personally have had to fight against? Yeah. I, I don't know how you, I don't know how anybody isn't affected by it. You have to. I mean, I have a cell phone. I have a smartphone. I, I, I'm no different. I have TV. I have cable. I have movies. I've got all that stuff, too. And so, yeah, to try to shut all that stuff down and try to reclaim your attention span, it takes an act of will to do that. It's, it's challenging. I'm actually being serious when I ask this because I really struggle with this in a major way as far as I'm writing, but I'm just going to check blank real quick. I'm writing. I'm just going to, and all of a sudden this flow you used to have where you could sit in front of a laptop for two hour or a typewriter, two or three hours and just write without interruption. I feel like that has really changed for many people, myself included. There's another argument for the typewriter, isn't there? <laughs> uh, 
right? <laughs> You're not getting email over your typewriter. So uh, it's nice to shut off the phone and close the computer and put it aside and get the typewriter out and just start rolling pages in. Then you're really, then you're, it's really just you and the page in front of you. Yeah. And yeah, I do absolutely take time to just sit and stare at a wall and think. I, I have to make that time for myself, but I do it. I have a, uh, I have a story in front of me from the uh, Chicago Tribune 2008. Uh, and it's actually a chart. Tracy lets his path to Pulitzer Prize glory. Oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah. And uh, we're going to notice, but there's also one about your favorite donut stops. But we'll, we'll, uh, <laughs> fall 2003, Steppenwolf Ensemble member Tracy Letts talks with Steppenwolf Artistic Director Martha Levy and literary manager Ed Sobo about writing a large scale drama set in Oklahoma and based in part on his own family history. October 2004, so a year later, Steppenwolf Theater issues a formal commission to Letts to write a play. It is to be called Autumn, Osage County. December 12, 2005, Sobel writes a check to Letts reflecting the delivery of the formal first draft of the play. Letts has changed the title to August, Osage County. February 2nd, 2006, Steppenwolf Theater announces as its new season, they'll include yet an unfinished play by Letts. Anna Shapiro slated to direct. 2007, you begin a run at Steppenwolf. Uh, with the production of Betrayal, and it goes on and on and on and on, and eventually it happens, and eventually, obviously, you win a Pulitzer in 2008 for this. And so in 2003, it starts. In 2008, you win the Pulitzer for this thing. When you were going through this all, and you're trying to put this, this thing you have, this idea in your head together, does it feel like an eternity, or does it feel like it actually sort of rushes by and, and time is not a factor? No, it feels like an eternity. It feels like a long time, but I, I needed all that time. It's not as if I was ready to do more and being stopped. I, I knew it was a long process. I knew I was entering into a long process. By the way, process was actually longer than that in that the events that inspired August Osage County were, you know, they took place when I was 10 years old. So I had kind of turned this idea over in my head uh, well, for a very long time, for a lot of years. And, you know, I think that uh, as a writer, I tend to spend a lot of time thinking about the thing I'm going to write before I write it. The, the pre-writing process of imagining, thinking, dreaming up ideas, throwing out bad ideas, that process for me sometimes is a years-long process. Then the writing part of it happens pretty quick. I will actually write something pretty quickly. And then in the theater, uh, we spend a long time in the post-writing process where we're having workshops, we're rehearsing the play, we're performing the play, uh, performing it, making changes in previews, multiple productions of the play. So there's a long time before I write it. There's a kind of a quick writing process, and there, then there's a long editing process after I write it. So, yeah, I knew it was a long period of time to work on August, but I knew it was a big piece and I knew it was going to take that kind of time. When you write something and you hand it in, do you obviously we all like it as writers when people say, oh, this is great. This is perfect. Like, do you have an expectation that people are going to shit all over your first draft and tell you everything that's wrong with it? Or do you have an expectation that people are immediately going to like it? Well, I guess I have a, a hope and a fear. And the hope is that they're going to love it and champion it and tell me I'm a genius and, and have a parade for me. And the fear is that they're going to shit all over it and say, this is garbage. I'm lucky in that uh, my uh, longtime association with Steppenwolf Theater 
I know a lot of really good theater artists. I work in collaboration with them. And what inevitably happens is neither my hope nor my fear. We finish reading it and I have a bunch of great artists who roll their sleeves up and say, let's go to work on it. Let's get to work. Let's, this is worthy of working on it. Let's work on it. What's next? And they start to interrogate the piece. So it's not, my ego uh, pretty quickly gets removed from the process. Suddenly we're just talking about the piece itself and how to improve it, how to best tell the story. I would feel very differently if I were writing books, if, if I were writing novels, uh, I, I might have a very different expectation. Uh, but because I work in a collaborative medium, I'm, uh, like I say, I'm surrounded by a lot of help and support. When you write a play, even though you are the one writing it on your typewriter, as you are writing it, are you thinking of it as a collaborative yeah. work? You are. Yeah, because I know I've done it long enough now to know that I have a picture in my head of the way it's going to look. And then the way it actually looks, it doesn't look like the picture in my head. It looks very different and it always looks better. Oh. They've always improved it. The, the people I work with, the artists I work with are really good at their jobs and that they, they always improve it. Again, if, if they didn't, if they made it worse, then I'd, then I'd become a novelist. But the truth is they make it better. So I enjoy and appreciate that collaboration. That's really interesting because I, um, I had Rodney Barnes on this podcast, one of the winning time writers. And he said um, his idea is always best when he comes up with it in the shower because he hasn't done anything to screw it up yet. And it's his perfect idea and he knows exactly what he wants. And then he can never live up to that ideal that he came up with in the shower. You're saying for you, that's not the case. That's not the case. Rodney's, Rodney's shower ideas may be uh, the, the ideal, but uh, for me, I've just learned over a long period of time now that uh, the people I work with make my stuff better. They've just always made it better. I recently signed a deal, a book deal and uh, a, a couple of books. And one is a, uh, one is a memoir of my early journalism career. And mm. I, I started as a young writer at the national Tennessee and I, I screwed up and screwed up and screwed up and, you know, as we all do. And um, I'm really nervous because I know when I write it, um, a lot of people are going to be insulted. You know, family members, friends, people I worked with colleagues that they're going to see themselves in this book and think, wait, that wasn't me or I wasn't that way. Or why do you have me portrayed that way? And obviously August isn't a verbatim autobiographical uh, slice of your life, but it is based on your life experience. And I heard you talk sort of about the reaction of your mother when you first showed it to her. What are the perils of writing about people from your life? And how much do you worry about that when you do it? I don't worry about it much. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, uh, I just assume again by now, I, I don't know We're I'm maybe a few years older than you. I, I assume by now that people understand that I'm a writer and I'm, I'm entitled to my, uh, to my version of the truth. Uh, and, uh, they can take exception to that or not. And certainly there have been cases where they have, I wrote a play, uh, a couple of plays ago, I wrote a play called Linda Vista. It was about a man in his fifties going through a, a bad divorce and estranged from his teenage son. And I borrowed a lot from a lot of guys in my life, a lot of friends in my life who have similar kinds of circumstances, uh, painful circumstances. 
And I borrowed a lot from their lives. I, I sometimes actually quoting things that I've heard them say. Now, I think my view of the guy overall was a compassionate view. What happens inevitably is that those guys would come see the show and one of two things would happen. First of all, they would think, oh, this play is about me. You intentionally took my life and wrote a play about me. It's like, well, no, it's not about you. It's, in fact, it's about a lot of people I know. Or the other version is that a guy looks at the play and doesn't think any of it's about him, doesn't even understand how it applies to him. It's like, oh, this isn't about me at all. Right. People have their own perception of their own story. And so they're going to... Uh, they're they're going to create the story that you're telling. It's it shot through their own perception. So maybe they'll get pissed off. Maybe they won't get pissed off. More often than not, people are flattered that you've paid attention. You know, more often than not, people. Uh, there's a story in Augusta Osage County about uh, a guy who was a member of my family getting uh, hit as a child uh, with a claw hammer by uh, an abusive stepfather. He said, how did you know the claw hammer story? <laughs> it's like he was just delighted somebody knew and remembered the claw hammer story. Right. The fact that it was this traumatic thing from his childhood, well, he had already processed that. He had already dealt with it. He had had a lifetime to deal with that. He was flattered somebody remembered, bothered to write down his story and put it on stage. So I I just wouldn't worry about it. I mean, you know, if there are close family members to whom you feel you have to make explanations or amends, then then that's a that's probably uh, that's probably its own topic. But uh, I mean, you're a writer. We're writers. That's what we do. Would you ever not use something because you were worried it would hurt someone's feelings? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, depending on how much it impacted me, uh, right? I mean. Uh, uh, again, uh, I have the right to my own story. And if that hurts somebody's feelings, well, that's too bad. But uh, I, I don't know. I, 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 again, I think people just have to realize you're a writer and that's what you do. You're, you, you record and report and, uh, and you're reporting your experiences and perceptions. Uh, there's a quote, 2008. Chicago Tribune again. I'm going old school. Oh, God. No, these are good, though. This is from uh, Martha Levy, the artistic director at Steppenwolf. I'm, I'm guessing you know her well. What I love about Tracy's plays is that he's very comfortable writing a narrative with a beginning, a middle, and an end. I have this highlighted with a big question mark. Again, I've never written a play. I don't know the world well. Are you not supposed to write a play with a beginning, middle, and an end? Like, what, <laughs> what did she mean by that? I don't know. It's kind of <laughs> a serious comment. And Martha's passed away, so I won't okay. be able to ask her what she meant by that. But uh, I guess what she means is that uh, sometimes the the fashion of the times uh, can can lead uh, can lead writers away from traditional narrative. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think all good plays have beginnings and middles and ends that they may, they may go about them differently, but uh, they, they all have beginnings, middles and ends. I can, I'm speaking from experience. I'm going to write my next book without a middle. Just to see, <laughs> <laughs> see if anyone notices. <laughs> Obviously your new play sort of de delves into the world we live in now. And um, 
I feel like I spend and probably waste a lot of time very, very angry about Trump, about this government, about what's happening, about the zombie-like state a large percent of our, of our population is in. And it definitely does not help my writing. It just makes me angry. But I also don't know what to do about it. And sometimes I feel like, what the fuck is my life come to? Like I'm writing a book about Bo Jackson. Meanwhile, the planet is melting. <laughs> and these are things I really, truly, truly, truly not exaggerating one iota struggle with. Yeah. Um, I do. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like I'm writing a book about Bo Jackson. Seriously, this is my life calling. Do you battle with this at all? Do you have any solutions for this at all? Cause I could sure use it. Uh, yeah, I do battle with it. I mean, it's hard. The, the world is right now, the world is, seems like such a, a really dangerous time not only in this country, but just on the planet, so many things that are going on. It just seems like a dangerous time. And it's easy to feel like what you do doesn't make any difference. And I don't know if you were writing a book about uh, climate change or you were writing a book about politics or you were writing a book about God. Uh, I don't know that you'd be getting any, I don't know that you'd be any more or less helpful I mean, I, I, I guess I think that uh, we're, we're all contributing in our own way. Uh, I think you contribute by, by making something, you know, by making something positive. In other words, I think the world needs a book about Bo Jackson. I think, uh, I think Bo Jackson is actually, I think it's something we need. I think, it's, I think it's part of the fabric of our lives. It's one of the things that makes life worth living entertainments on stage or sports events or good music or, or a book about Bo Jackson. I, I think you actually do more good by writing the things that you know and love by doing the thing you're good at than by trying to do something else uh, that you may be not good at. I think you're probably more helpful uh, than you know. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who will be leaving for college next fall with dreams of becoming a high school history teacher. Fashion designer. I thought your dream was to educate. It is, but ever since you introduced me to 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, my eyes have been open to the wonders of fashion. I don't get it. Dad. My new dream is to come up with all sorts of amazing designs for 503 Sports. So when the USFL games start up later this year, I'll have created all this merchandise for fans to wear to the stadiums of their favorite teams. Go Wranglers! Go Stars! Go Stallions! Casey, the USFL died more than 30 years ago. It's not a thing anymore. Well, that makes my future look pretty bleak, doesn't it? Do you ever have the moments where you're like frozen by the kind of fear of it all? Or do you not get into that place? Yeah, I do. I, I don't know how you avoid it in this day and age. I don't know how you avoid it. It, it. it can feel like, well, it can feel like what you described. It can feel like, what the hell am I doing? What, what, you know, with all the things that are going on in the world, why am I worried about this play on stage or this book? But again, I have to kind of remind myself, it's like, I, I, I just think you do more good in the world by, by doing the thing you're good at and doing it as well as you can do it. I mean, you're really good at it, right? I, I, I mean, there's a reason that this Lakers book has become this series, and I think it reaches a lot of people, and I think it inspires a lot of people. I really do. I mean, Jerry West, maybe not one of them, but 
uh, inspires a lot of people who watch it. And, and it's a great story about people coming together with a, with a common goal. I think one of the great things that your book does at, and one of the things the show has been very successful at is showing these people from these very different sets of circumstances and a lot to overcome, having to overcome those things to, to reach a, a common goal, a very difficult goal. You know, I, I was talking to a friend about the Jerry West thing, and I, he was sort of making the Jerry West's argument. He was playing devil, devil's advocate and making Jerry West's argument. I was arguing with him a, a good-natured argument. And I, I said, well, did you, have you gotten as far in the series as watching Jerry West in his childhood? You know, uh, uh, he said, oh, yeah, 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 the alcoholic father. And so he goes outside and he shoots baskets. He, he said, who, who doesn't have that? <laughs> who doesn't have some version of that story? But once again, I think that's the importance of telling that story. I think everybody does have a version of that story, the things they have to overcome uh, to make something great. It's hard to make something great. It's really hard. And Jerry West did. And you do, and I do, or we try uh, to make something great. It's hard to do. And I, I, I think more people need those stories. I think Bo Jackson, I can't wait to read your Bo Jackson book. I appreciate that. I really do. Um, and I actually, I want to say something to you that I, I mean, and I wasn't even going to bring up here. My favorite part of that book, Showtime, was Jack McKinney by far. I went down to his house in Florida. He was really struggling with his memory. He was a delightful man. His family was awesome. His wife was fantastic. But nobody really knew that story. And seeing you play Jack McKinney and even just seeing people on social media or people coming up to me and asking me about Jack McKinney because you are playing Jack McKinney because the show exists warms my heart times a thousand. Like warms my heart times a thousand. It's my favorite part of the show and my favorite part of that book that people actually know who Jack McKinney is. That means something to me. I really appreciate that, Jeff. It was a real gift that dropped into my lap. I, I you know, I... I'm old enough that I remember the Showtime Lakers. I, uh, I was not a huge basketball fan. I didn't really become a big basketball fan until I moved to Chicago in my early 20s. And Jordan was drafted just a year or two after I got there. And so, you know, I got to enjoy all those years, the, the Jordan years in Chicago. But I certainly followed basketball. I remember the finals with uh, uh, Magic and Bird and – and so I remember the, the Showtime Lakers very well. Didn't like them, uh, but uh, I did not know Jack McKinney's story at all, at all. Didn't know the name. And this kind of landed in my lap uh, with a script from uh, Max and a letter from Max Borenstein, the, the show's creator. And he described it as kind of a like, this is the secret weapon of this first season. And I, I watched the pilot because they'd shot it and completed it before they, uh, you know, got shut down by the pandemic. And of course, the show is so fun. It's shot in such a fun, uh, engaging style. Uh, John C. is an, an old friend of mine. I, I knew John C. in Chicago. Uh, one of my first things I ever did in Chicago was go to a graduating party for students at DePaul. And John was graduating from DePaul. Wow. So I've known John for over 30 years and, you know, my wife and I, we've got two little kids. I'm an old dad. We've got two little kids. And so when, 
it's become very easy to say no or yes to projects based on that. So when we watched the pilot and I read the script, I just turned to my wife and said, I got to do this, right? And she said, oh, yeah, we never have any kind of disagreement about that. We know when the thing is right. And getting to play that guy, getting to play Jack, learning about Jack, what a gift. It was a pure delight to play it. The whole thing was just a blessed experience. Uh, I haven't received a check from you at all. I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> Bouquet of flowers or anything. I mean, nothing. <laughs> very, very insulting. Um, I saw an interview you did when you were promoting a movie from a few years ago called uh, Christine, which you were in. And you were talking about how it was a pretty low budget movie. And you were, you, you were saying in a positive way, you're saying how it was basically sandwich meat for lunch. And, you know, it was very bare bones and you were happy to do it. You enjoyed the experience and you've been around now for a good amount of years, as have I. Do you still care at all, or maybe you never cared about the perks of celebrity or the perks of fame or the perks of Hollywood being recognized or award shows or having really nice craft services? Like, does that stuff mean anything to you? No, no. <laughs> How come? <laughs> well, I don't know, because if all that stuff is great, but the story you're telling is shit, who cares? I mean, I can get a good meal all on my own. I don't need, uh, no, I don't care about that stuff. I care about the storytelling. What I care about is the storytelling. It's one of the reasons I don't direct. People always ask me, why do you direct? And I'm like, because directors have to worry about shit I don't want to worry about. Brown wallet or black wallet, I don't give a fuck. Uh, you know, I, I, I care about the storytelling. I care about uh, how we're telling the story. Are we telling it dynamically? Are we telling it efficiently? Are we telling it honestly, like like a kind of a humanistic honesty? That's what I care about. That's the stuff that ensemble. I care about ensemble. I care about. I care about making the actors around me look as good as they can look. Uh, that's what I care about. Like, do you even go to premieres? Do you care about premieres? I go if I'm in town. I don't care about them. Right. I mean, I, 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 I'll do what I, what I can to help publicize a thing because, you know, we're always competing for audience and for, you know, views or whatever. I, I, so, if it's if I can do something to help the producers of a thing that I believe in sell their show, I'll do that. Right. Uh, sometimes I'll do uncomfortable things. I mean, I go I go on morning TV if they want me to go on morning TV to try to sell a show. I'm not comfortable on morning TV, but I'll do it to sell a show. So yeah, I'll go to a premiere, but I don't I don't need to go to the premiere. Right. Have you ever put something out, and in hindsight? You, I'll preface by saying I wrote a book of several years ago. It's a biography of Roger Clemens and I hate the book. Like in hindsight, I hate the book. I don't think the book is very good. I'm disappointed in it. I wish I could have a do over and never did it. I just don't like it. I learned from it, but I don't like it. Have you ever put anything out and you look back and you think, I don't know, I could have done better or I don't like that or my sensibilities were off or I wasn't mature enough to do blank. Yeah, and usually it happens because uh, it hasn't happened much because I work in the theater and in the theater, as I say, because it's a years long process, normally it, it, 
it winds up looking the way I want it to look, whether other people like it or not. But some of the work I've done in film and television, I've made a couple of mistakes there. And I, I, they have, again, it's because I maybe took the job for the wrong reason. Uh, it sort of goes back to the very initial impulse. It's like, well, this works out because I'll be in that part of the country when this is shooting, or this works out because they're going to pay me a lot of money. Right. I, I mean, I've taken gigs for money before and they, they uh, and what I've tried to do there is just like cash the check and not look back and say, okay, I, that's the reason I did it was for the money. And so that's part of the price you pay. You did something for the money. So it's not going to be as good as the thing you normally have control over. Uh, but yeah, what can you do? Uh, we're human beings. What is it you don't like about the Clemens book? Ah, the reporting isn't great. It was rushed. They actually, Oh, this is a perfect example of mo the money. My publisher, they were worried about it coming out after another Clemens book. And they offered me not even that much money if I could get it in early. And I just rushed it. And the thing is lazy and sloppy. Right. As opposed to saying, you know what? Keep your money. I'm going to take the time and make the thing as, as good as I can make it. You know, it's just, so, and, and I don't even necessarily think you made the wrong decision. You might've needed that money. And that money might have uh, done things that you needed in your life. In some ways, it might have been the more responsible decision. But that's the trade-off. There's a trade-off. Let me ask you a last question. <laughs> I've had a, a phenomenon lately of people saying to me, you get this with social media, which I think you wisely avoid for the most part. People coming up to you and telling you why they don't like something you did. Um, <laughs> I've got that a lot with Winning Time, where people are like, oh, man, Winning Time, blah, 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 blah. Or, or someone will be like, yeah, I read your book. I really like parts of it, but blank, 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 blank. I'm sure you get this because you work in a very public medium. Does it piss you off? Does it irk you? Do you ignore it? Do you say thanks and move on? How do you deal with that kind of freaking maddening shit? Uh, yes, it pisses me off. Uh, yes, I try to move on. Uh, <laughs> but, I, I, you know, the, the they're just... Uh, there, there are a lot of uh, untalented scavengers out there. Just, you know, uh, just like, where's your fucking book? Where <laughs> you, you know, uh, uh, what have you done? Who, who made you an expert? They don't know. You, you realize that the people who come up and say this shit to you, they don't know what they're talking about. It's hurtful that they think they, they can say it. You, you want to reach everybody, but, I'll tell you something else uh, that I've come to really believe. If everybody likes the thing you did, then you probably didn't do a very good job. Uh, because if everybody likes it, then your thing lacks a point of view. And uh, good writing needs a point of view. And so not everybody's going to agree with your point of view. So, yeah, fuck them. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. Fuck them. My favorite line ever from any book I've written, I wrote a Brett Favre biography years ago and he had a cameo in There's Something About Mary. And yeah. one of his teammates said, hey, Brett, you were a freaking piece of wood and There's Something About Mary. And Brett Favre's response was, how many movies have you sucked in? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I've used that quote many times. I actually love that. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, Tracy, listen, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I, uh, I really, 
Uh, I'm very thankful that you are a, a part of winning time, a big part of winning time and uh, a very big admirer of your career and your writing. So uh, thank you so much for doing this. Jeff, thanks a lot. I, uh, I, I'm sure I'll see you down the line and uh, good luck with the Bo Jackson book. I can't wait to read it. Uh, thank you. I want to thank today's guest, Tracy Letts, for joining me on Two Riders Sing and Yang. You can see Tracy's latest play, The Minutes, on Broadway at Studio 54 and catch him on HBO Max in Winning Time. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Sing and Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.